I wonder if any of you have ever had a phase in your life, or maybe you've had some thinking that kind of goes along the lines like this. The Bible is very difficult um, to understand, and I look at it, and I first thing I think to myself is something like, here is this ancient book that meant something to somebody, but it was so long ago, I don't really know if it's relevant to me. I wonder if you've spoken to somebody who feels that way. Maybe you've had a phase. Um, do any of you remember having a phase like that? Maybe you're in the phase. Raise your hand if you've ever had a phase where you looked at your Bible and you're like, I, I just don't know. I don't know. I don't know how to get it. I don't know what I'm supposed to get. And if you grew up in the King James Version, you're like, I can't. It's impossible to get it. I, I, I don't speak Old English or uh, whatever language that King James Bible is in. I don't speak it. Um, well, I get the thrill on a, on a Sunday after Sunday basis of helping us discover that the Bible itself may be ancient, but it's not irrelevant. It may be old, but it doesn't mean it can't come alive new in your heart. Because the Bible is specifically provided to us so that God can be discovered by us. And He works by His Holy Spirit to help us discover who He is, and He does that through the Scriptures. And we get a great example of that today, where we get to look at a story that would seem from a distance old and ancient, but I want to tell you today, brace yourself, it's not old and ancient. It comes alive as new and relevant in your heart. And if you're open uh, to that, I think the Holy Spirit could do something unique and do something special. And my hope is that you see somehow that what God was doing through the book of Ruth was to not only get His people ready, but to get our hearts ready for the soon coming Savior at the time. By soon coming, I mean centuries of time, of course, um, because that's how long we would wait. So, um, by, uh, God is showing us in the Scripture that He is involved in your life. And He's showing us that specifically through the book of Ruth as He answers this question in the book of Ruth, how is God involved in the day-to-day -day joys and hardships of our lives? M many of us would say, most of the time, I already know He's not because I don't feel the feels. It's hard for me to detect where He's at work. But you'll see in the book of Ruth that whether you feel the feels or not, God's hidden hand is at work bringing healing to hearts that are hurting. And he does that in ways that are sometimes perceivable, sometimes feelable, but most of the time not. Most of the time he is caring for his own creation. So what's the, the story of the book of Ruth? Uh, in Israel, there's a famine. Uh, God is at work disciplining his children, and there is a couple, um, Elimelech and Naomi, who flee Israel. They flee the famine, and they go to Moab. They've been warned not to go to Moab. If you go to Moab, your sons are going to marry their daughters, and eventually your family is going to be worshiping their idols. Um, and so uh, Naomi and Elimelech go there, and they have daughters, and uh, they marry sons. And for whatever reason, uh, the book of Ruth tells us that the, the ladies lost their husbands. Naomi's husband and her, um, uh, her son's perish, uh, uh, perish, that's such a dramatic word. That's a King James word. Uh, they pass away. And so she has uh, her and her two daughter-in-laws 
who are returning back after the famine ends to Israel, and they are deeply concerned about their safety, their security, and their wealth, and their ability, because they're now widows, about their ability to prosper in life. Um, And so they're going to need some divine intervention, and they're going to need that in a dramatic way. And on their way back home, uh, Naomi tells her daughter-in-laws, you need to stay in Moab where you've already started and maybe find a new wife, a new husband for yourself. You're young. The prospects there are probably better than going back to Israel where I'm from. And of course, we know that uh, one of her daughter-in-laws turns back and the other one, Ruth, says, I would never leave you, Chancho. I would never leave you, she says. I am with you. I am committed to you. I am for you. And, And Ruth demonstrates this God-sized faithfulness and devotion to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And they get back and uh, obviously deeply concerned about whether or not they're going to be able to build a life for themselves. They see God start to work through sending them someone nearby who could potentially save the family. And in his faithfulness, he sends them a seemingly ordinary farmer whose name is Boaz, but Boaz has wealth and influence. And God begins the work of providing for them so faithfully and brings healing to Naomi who claims that um, she has suffered from bitter emptiness. And in her suffering, she's needing God's intervention. And we see that God faithfully, through ordinary people, begins to meet her need. And He starts to plan something special for her. Now, God doesn't only plan something special for Naomi and Ruth, but God, through ordinary people, also prepares humanity through these people and through this story. Uh, He prepares humanity for another Redeemer who's going to go on to bless the world through the descendants of King David. And He does that miraculously here in the book of Ruth. And in a time where you're expecting the people of Israel to be led by a king or a judge... We see God is at work just using ordinary people, regular folks, some wealthy, some not so wealthy. And we get to look in and watch how God uses the obedience of these people to fill a widow's bitter emptiness with new hope and new joy and new life and changes her family's life forever. It's a thrilling four-chapter story. If some of you are concerned about reading the Bible because it's so long, Uh, I encourage you to check out the book of Ruth if you haven't already. Chapter 4 that we're going to talk about today is on redemption. Boaz is about to marry Ruth. Uh, They have some, um, let's let's say, some kindles of love that have sparked between the two of them. And, And Boaz is about to marry Ruth and redeem her and Naomi from their bitter, um, from their bitter emptiness. Now, we can't go much further without looking at this word redemption. We talked a Sunday or two ago about family redeemer, um, kinsman redeemer, um, guardian redeemer. All these are phrases for the same idea that's in this law that was in the Old Testament. And the law was that there was a family member when somebody uh, passed away, when a husband passed away, his next of kin brother would marry his widow and then keep his estate, his wealth and his name and his reputation and ultimately um, keep it in the family and continue on the descendants. So, um, redemption. Deliverance from some evil at a cost. There's a payment to deliver that someone or something from evil. 
And so that's what the word redemption means. And I want you to think of, if you would, it's the idea of freedom secured by the payment of a price. And, and uh, not to brag, but this is why I can't stop thrifty shopping. It costs me money to rescue those shoes from rejection. The shoes that have been cast off and rejected. Those shoes that have been um, unwanted and discarded, and I pay a small price to redeem them. Not to brag, but I wanted to mention, in some ways, I see myself as a thrifty redeemer. You know what I mean? You know what I'm talking about? Some of you do. You can feel it. Anyway, so keep this in mind. The idea of redemption is not a church story, a pastor story, a preacher story, and a Sunday school story. The word redemption is a word that sets us up to understand. This is so good. It sets us up to understand what the Bible's about. Because at the very beginning, there were people that were lost to evil, and they were human beings, Adam and Eve. And then throughout history, God was at work divinely and creatively was at work to do all the work required to redeem that which was lost, which was the human beings that He created, to be with Him, to know Him intimately, and to live at peace with Him. And when those humans were lost, it set in motion the work of God to miraculously redeem, to deliver human beings from some evil by the payment of a price. Does that make sense? So the whole Bible is a redemption story. And in the book of Ruth, we get to see how this redemption story is actually a romance story. And we're going to cover that a little bit. And think of the idea of freedom that has to be secured, but it isn't secured by promises and handshakes. That story is secured by cost, by price. And that price is devastating in some cases. The first half of the chapter of, uh, of chapter 4 shows us that Boaz is seeking to resolve a matter that is pretty significant. And the matter that he's trying to resolve in chapter 4 before he can marry Boaz is, is, um, is a matter of the law. There's a legal situation, and it's a significant problem. And it actually brings us here to, in chapter 4 to a very serious problem, and, and, and the problem that he's facing is also a problem for Ruth and Naomi. And so the question that we start with in chapter 4 is, what's the problem? Why doesn't Boaz just marry her? Do you remember um, a Sunday ago, remember we talked about how uh, it was Ruth who went beyond the plan by faith, and she said, hey, listen, would you spread your garment over me, representing, would you receive my proposal for marriage, <laughs> right, and cover me with your security and wealth and and, and would, you, would you take me in and have me as your wife? And then we're kind of left there because the response of Boaz is to say, here's some stuff, take it with you. I'm willing to do this. But he doesn't marry her right away. Um, and there's a reason why he doesn't marry her right away, and it's a legal problem. The problem that they're having is a law problem. Um, <laughs> this resonates with some people, Right? <laughs> There's a problem, and it's the problem with the law. According to this family redeemer law, there's a closer relative than Boaz. So listen, imagine this. 
There's these sparks that are flying. God is at work by his hidden hand bringing them together, but now we've got a problem because the obstacle to the marriage, to the restoration and the redemption of Ruth is the law. And the law says that Boaz isn't entitled to marry her, that first there's an unknown relative who is entitled to, who is a closer relative. And Boaz knows this, so Boaz is like, I can't marry you because there's this law thing. There's this legal problem that we've got. Someone is more entitled to me. And by the way, you'll read in this chapter that it's an extensive law process. I'll spare you the details because it's an extensive law process. And there's a lot to it. And ultimately, what we discover is, I mean, you can even imagine that what plays out in chapter 4 is not this dramatic and beautiful romance story. It's more of a long, elaborate courtroom drama that plays out. And you kind of get a sense as to how much is there. Now, when we're reading this, when we're reading this elaborate legal thing, let me give you an example. Remember at the beginning where I was like, you know, you get to that Old Testament, you're like, ah, this is so hard and so irrelevant. One of the things you pick up when you read this legal description here in the book of Ruth, by the way, it's the part of the book of Ruth where you would do one of these numbers. Okay, anyway, where's the good stuff? How can we get to the good part? But one of the things that I hope that we see together is that when you read how elaborate the law is, It helps you kind of get a greater appreciation for what Boaz went through to make this redemption happen. That there was, uh, it, it helps us see how wonderful Boaz's redemption was. And it makes me think that it's just as wonderful as the theological implications of what Jesus has accomplished for us, right? We may not understand the legal process, but we can appreciate what Boaz did to do it, to to redeem her. We may not understand systematic theology, and as important as it is, it helps us to appreciate what God has done to accomplish redemption for us. So that's one of the things that we can see when we're kind of plowing through the law. So we see here that redeeming Ruth is not going to be free. We see that there's a heavy price to pay. Um, And we get a greater appreciation for what Boaz is about to do. But the question is, which man, which redeemer is going to pay the price? Which one is going to step up and step in? The law says the closest relative redeems. The law says that it's the closest relative who pays the price. But here's what we learn in the story, that without love, the law was not enough to save her. She was not saved by him because the law wasn't enough to compel him to do it. And we're going to kind of see this together, how important this process is right here. The anonymous relative's interests in, is primarily in what he needs. What does that mean? Um, what it means is with God, following the rules is never enough. There's more to our relationship with God than following the rules. That's not what He's demanding of us. There's, it's actually more. He demands more, and we're going to investigate that a little bit. And there's something deeper that God is offering. And what God is offering us is so much deeper than the rules. It's so much each, um, deeper than the law of following the rules so that God is happy and we don't get punished. So what does this closer relative say? Some of you know how the story goes. The... the um, He's asked if he would redeem Ruth, and what does he say about the prospect of paying the price of 
the Redeemer. Here's what he says. We hear from this anonymous relative, and here's what he says. Well, then, hearing all of this, I can't redeem the property. The family Redeemer replied to that, because this might endanger my own estate. You redeem the land, he says to Boaz. I cannot do it. So what does he say? He says, nah, no thanks. No deal. It's um, not going to work for me. And he elected not to pay the price for redemption because it included marrying Ruth. So he's basically saying, I'll buy the property and take ownership of that, but I'm not going to sign on to marry Ruth. And what's he concerned about? It's going to endanger my own estate. It's going to put at risk my inheritance. And my generational wealth is going to be at uh, at risk if I marry her and then have to put it all in the name of her deceased husband. So to him, the sacrifice was too great. And he was more concerned about his own welfare, his own property, his own prosperity, his own legacy than he was with the welfare of a widow, a foreign widow who was in need. So he urges Boaz to do it. So look how Boaz's interest in what Ruth needs. So here's Boaz's response. We like Boaz, don't we? Don't we all like Boaz? I'm doing my best to try to present to you who Boaz is, but Boaz, uh, in, in theological circles, Boaz is legendary. He's legendary. Um, the name is hard to swallow, right? We'll just call him Bo, maybe? I should have done that. That would have been so much better. So here's what Boaz says. Then Boaz said to the elders and to the crowd standing around, what's going to happen? The crowd's watching this, this court case, this legal uh, um, process, and the crowd standing around. And he says to the crowd standing around, you are witnesses that today I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malone. That is her um, son's. And with the land, I have acquired Ruth. That's kind of wild, right? Our, our culture doesn't get that, does it? Our culture's like, I got Ruth, and then I acquired the land. That's how it works, you know? Um, so that's a cultural tidbit for you there. The Moabite widow of Malone to be my wife. So he's announcing, I have done, I've satisfied the law. I am marrying her, and now it's going to be her and her property and he's making sure everybody sees that this is a public a transaction that has occurred. Now, he's accountable publicly. He's putting his name on the line publicly. His reputation is on the line here publicly. And he says, this way she can have a son to carry on the family name. Who's this about? Boaz is saying, this is about her. She's now going to be able to have a son to carry on her name. And uh, this name of her dead husband and to inherit the family property. So, what do we see again? Again, this kinsman redeemer, this guardian redeemer, this family redeemer, what is he concerned about? He's concerned about redeeming for her her family name and her family property. Right in his, right in, um, his hometown, and you are all my witnesses today. So, in chapter 4, we get a clear picture of how and why Boaz redeems Ruth. How and why, it's clearly laid out to us. So it's Boaz, we learn, who is willingly, selflessly, willingly to selflessly pay the full price. That is such an important aspect of the story that we're grabbing a hold of here today. And why 
is her Redeemer doing this? So we see that it was Boaz who selflessly paid the price of marrying Ruth and giving up uh, his own name and wealth for the sake of carrying on her family name. Also, we get the answer to the question why he's doing this. Her Redeemer is driven by self-sacrificing love. The law couldn't make it happen. The law couldn't redeem her. But we see that her Redeemer is driven by self-sacrificing love. And Boaz was willing to pay the price, not because he was wealthy, the other um, family member was wealthy too, but he was willing to pay the price. This is so big, so huge, so important for the rest of understanding the New Testament. He was willing to sacrifice himself and pay the price because of his love for her. It was love that drove him. And a true redeemer is this kind of person. A true redeemer is the kind of person willing to pay the price, not uh, uh, for the good of themselves, but the good of other people. And this is the mark of Boaz, but not the other relative. Now, there's some contrasting redeemers here. We've got this um, anonymous redeemer, and we've got this uh, redeemer that we've all come to love. And the reluctance of the other redeemer helps us better understand how amazing it is, the love that's compelling Boaz, the commitment and the selflessness that's compelling him, who laid down his own interests, and he says, I am doing this for her and for her mother. Now, using a shepherd metaphor, um, where are my metaphor people here? Where's my word picture people here? Word pictures and metaphors, so much easier, right? So much easier. Jesus describes this kind of like two kinds of redeemers, but he uses sheep and a shepherd. And you may remember the story where Jesus is talking about his sheep, and um, he contrasts the work of one redeemer to someone else's work. And here's what he says. Jesus says, I, this is going to be a contrast, am the good shepherd. Everybody can picture a shepherd, maybe not. Anybody live in the deserts of the Middle East? No? Okay. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for his sheep. And now he starts to talk about a not-so-good shepherd. And he says, a hired hand will run when he sees a wolf coming. He will abandon the sheep because they don't belong to him, and he isn't their shepherd. Um, I can't remember. I can't even think how many times when I was working in retail very, very early on in my adult life and um, I heard one of the co-workers either damage something or waste something and then say something like, it's not mine. Remember that whole scene, right? Scratch it up, ding it up, knock it down, break it in pieces, and then the rationale is, well, any of my property. Jesus is basically saying that's what hired help does. Hired help does, what hired help does is uh, they abandon the sheep because it doesn't belong to them. And so the wolf attacks them and scatters the flock. What does the hired hand do? Anyone know? The hired hand runs away. And because he's working only for the money and he doesn't really care about the sheep. And this is, this is so important for us. We, we now get this picture of what it means to entrust our heart to a counterfeit shepherd or to entrust our heart to someone or something that we're hoping saves us or protects us, and it doesn't. And it's so important for us to recognize 
how easy it is for us to chase inadequate redeemers who look out only for their own interests, who are never willing to save you because they're looking out for their own well-being and cannot rescue and redeem you from your own emptiness because you don't belong to them and they are, as soon as it gets difficult, they're gone. They're out. And I want to just talk about for just a minute here or at least try to make sense of this for some of you who are chasing inadequate love, chasing love that is not going to save you and fill you and heal you and rescue you. It is not going to bring to you that which you are longing for because those things care primarily for themselves or him or herself. Some of you who are chasing the love of a boyfriend or a girlfriend with the confident belief that once that love sparks and it's the right person at the right time, all of your emptiness is going to go away. And then you discover that ultimately that person is pursuing their own fulfillment ahead of yours. And then beware, right? Beware of chasing this kind of saving love in saving redemption, where your emptiness is filled by your spouse, who is prone to let you down. And when you build that spouse up to meet this need in your heart that you, that you sense this emptiness and this spouse is going to fill it up, the higher you lift that spouse up in order to do that, the more painful the fall is, the collapse is, that comes crashing down when you realize, I married a human I married a limited human with a limited capacity to care for me and, and, and fill that bitter emptiness, or in some cases, lonely emptiness in my own heart. Be careful chasing this kind of fulfillment through your kids who will sacrifice one day, who will have to sacrifice your needs to pursue their own happiness. And then you think to yourself, this isn't the arrangement that I thought we had when I was sacrificing everything for them. And be careful, of course, in pursuing somehow fulfillment through your church leaders, your spiritual authority, your pastors, when somehow you, come, you will come to discover that that love has limits. That love itself will ultimately choose to protect themselves when the wolves come, and the wolves come after their family. But here we see, instead, a shepherd that is never going to let us down and leave us empty, and is never going to abandon us for the sake of protecting his own self. Those are all inadequate redeemers. And sometimes those redeemers take from you more than they give you. They take from you more than they give you. You think about somebody who is sending, and this hits home personally for me, sending all their, uh, for the family that I grew up in, sending all their hard-earned money to a celebrity preacher, believing by faith that there's going to be some windfall of prosperity that comes back, only to discover the prosperity. There was a windfall of prosperity, but it didn't come back to them. It was their fourth beach house for the celebrity preacher. 
And here is somebody who is using you to build their own wealth and to build their own fame before eventually being exposed as a fraud. And you might say, who are you talking about? You name it, you name it. Any one of them, any one of them who you don't know. And you think, too, about the inadequate redeemer. And, and this, this, of course, gets kind of dark and ugly here, but I just let me warn some of you who are secretly pursuing this fullness in a mistress or a mister, somehow believing that this person is authentically filling up this need, this emptiness in your own life. Well, sooner or later, they will cheat on you the way they are cheating on whoever they're cheating on to be with you, right? That seems like, when you're not in it, it seems like a logical transaction, right? If they're willing to betray the person they're with, guess what's around the corner for you? Betraying you. And so, this is not a sermon about adultery and um, mistresses and so on. Instead, here's what I'm hoping that you see. There is a love that is for you, and you can depend on it. There is a love that is for you who is not protecting itself, but is entirely, fully committed to protecting you and your heart. And this is a love that you can sign up for, and you can go all in on, because generation after generation after generation has been a witness to this love is life-changing love. This love is a love that is life-changing. And how will you know who loves you for you? It's someone who is willing to love you by their own self-sacrifice. Their own self And so Jesus continues, by the way, this contrast metaphor here. And he says, don't forget, I'm the good shepherd, not the hired hand. Not these other lesser thans. Not these inadequate lovers and protectors. Right? Instead, he says, I know my own sheep, and they know me, just as my Father knows me, and I know the Father. So I sacrifice my life for the sheep. It blows my mind how many people have given their whole life to a cult or a religion that has a lead teacher who hasn't given up anything for the followers. When in contrast, there is a faith called the Christian faith where the lead celebrity, the hero of the faith, doesn't demand anything from you, but instead has done everything in his earthly power and divine power for you. And that shepherd is Jesus. Now, if you're signed on to another faith, another religion, or you've been caught up in another cult, it is a vivid contrast. And I invite you to take a look at this shepherd who sacrifices his own life for the sheep. And don't miss the big idea here in the book of, of Ruth. Jesus, this is, this is so exciting. Jesus is our true. Don't we like Boaz? We love Boaz. There's a true and better Boaz. The book of Ruth is kind of about Boaz, who is a unbelievable redeemer. The book of Ruth is kind of about Ruth, who in her own way is a redeemer to Naomi. But here's the exciting part. This is why when I said at the very beginning, I get the thrill of explaining the Bible. Check this out. In the book of Ruth, we are seeing the the very glimpses of a true and better Boaz who is Jesus. 
who redeems helpless outsiders who are far from God. Do you remember being far from God, not right with God, doing your own thing for your own reasons, starting to feel this bitter emptiness? Like, I don't know if it's all working the way I planned. It's amazing to watch celebrities at the top of their game say, is this it? Is this all there is? I'm still empty? I thought this would get me. I thought fame and wealth and, and, and achieving my success in my area of talent would, would bring me all the fulfillment. But this Jesus redeems helpless outsiders at full cost, not to you, not to someone else, but at full cost to himself. Our Redeemer willingly pays the full price. Our Redeemer fully, Lord Jesus willingly paid a much greater price than Boaz did. Boaz spent his wealth. Um, We see that Jesus spends even more than that. Jesus overcomes the legal requirements, right? To satisfy the law, Jesus publicly pays the legal price for sin. What's the legal, some of you who know your Bible, what's the legal wage or price for sin? It's death. God, in his economy, says, Sin is bad. Well, how bad is it? Do you get a slap on the wrist? No. Do you get grounded? No. Is it a timeout? No. The legal price for sin is death. Jesus pays. He overcomes that law. He himself, on his own, pays that legal price for a sin. How does he do it? With his perfect life and his physical death. And he covers all of the legal. He overcomes the law in our place at great personal cost. On the cross, Jesus personally pays for our redemption. How does he do it on the cross? With his own blood and shame. Not someone else's, not ours. Not um, certainly the disciples, but on his own for his own. So Boaz was special. But our Redeemer is even more special. Boaz may have impaired his inheritance, right? He limited his own inheritance. He impaired it. He put someone else's name on it, but Jesus was actually willing to empty himself, not just his wealth, but his own body, and accept a public execution to secure our redemption. He was willing to pay the full price. How is it described? Check this out. This is Paul describing the price that Jesus paid. Are you ready for this? I don't think you're ready. Are you ready for this? I don't think you're ready. Here we go. Jesus is so rich, so rich, so wealthy, so infinitely, supremely capable that in kindness, so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased. We just read about Boaz purchasing. He purchased our freedom, right? He brought, it, he brought it from slavery. He purchased our freedom with the blood of His Son, and He forgave our sins. Now, you've been around, some of you, you've been around long enough. You read stuff like this, and you're like, I know, we sing about it, talk about it every Sunday. Bah, I mean, come on, right? Here's what I'm hoping, that beyond these words, the Holy Spirit's at work deep in your heart, that when you see something like this, your eyes say, yeah, I've seen it before, but your heart says, this is new, this is fresh. This is coming alive. And, 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 and we see here that looking beyond, there's a greater story. 
surrounding the story of Ruth, and it's a love story. It's an epic love story of Jesus the Redeemer who loves the people who He redeems. And what should stir affection in us is not the legal um, ways in which Jesus has accomplished this by the law. It's not the consistencies or the logical consistencies of a theological system, but our awe and our wonder. That's where our appreciation comes from. That's where our affection comes from. Our awe and wonder of Jesus' infinite love for empty outsiders like us. In some cases, bitter, empty outsiders like us. Now, we also know why God did this, right? We know what He did. He satisfied the law, but we also know why. So, our Redeemer willingly pays the full price, but there's a reason. What's driving Him? Because of His compelling love. He Try, try, to, try to get this fresh, if you would. God did everything He did to redeem us, not because He had to, not because the law required him to, that he made a law and he's got to follow his own law, but he was motivated by love. How many of you um, remember watching sports when signs were allowed? You'd watch it on TV and they allowed signs in the stadiums. And every time in football, someone would kick a field goal. Right behind the net of the goalpost, there used to be someone that would hold the banner up. Do you remember that? What was on the banner? John 3.16. Thanks for saying the right verse. I've been so put off by the wrong verse. John 3.16. It's amazing, right? you got a whole Bible and somebody says, oh, here's the verse that we're going to broadcast to the world. What did that mean? What, what does John 3.16 mean? John 3... Yeah, thank you. You're reciting it. Thank you, VBS. You're doing such a good job this morning. Check this out. For this is how God loved us. Or you might remember it this way, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. This was His motive. This is what was driving God. This is what He accomplished, and this is why He accomplished it, because He loved His people. He loved who He had created, and He loved what this would mean for His own self if He accomplishes this great redemption, that people would say, God is great. God is glorious. As we consider the theme of redemption, we find God acting on behalf of the weak. We find God acting on behalf of the, self, the, the helpless out of His divine love. And then God says that my love brings me to a marriage union where I join you with Jesus, and now there's this intimate oneness that comes along with knowing Jesus. Union and oneness. And Jesus says, and then I'm going to offer you a perfect groom who is me. Imagine this. God rewards the bride who is the church, it's us, with a groom who is perfect, and the reward is His excellent perfections. Imagine that there is a groom available to us who has supreme excellencies that can never, ever um, be exhausted. And then Jesus offers a future inheritance. He provides us His bride with the riches of heaven. And He does this because of love. It's It's a love story. It's an epic love story. So, understanding the theology of all of it, should only lead us to more awe, more wonder, more affection, 
at the love and sacrifice of Jesus. And this storyline of love is motivating our redemption, and it reaches back through the whole Bible. Um, do you have time to skim through some things in the Old Testament? Can I show you? Do you have time? Good. Thank you for nodding. Check this out. All the way back in the Old Testament, in Exodus, we go all the way back to Exodus. Why is God doing what He's doing? Check this out. Because He loved your ancestors, He chose to bless their descendants. Why did God do this? Because He loved your ancestors. It's all the way back in Exodus. And He personally brought you out of Egypt with a great display of power. Why? Why did God do it? Because He loved your ancestors. God is a God who is doing what He's doing out of love. Look in the book of Hosea. When Israel was a child, I loved him. I loved Israel. And I called my son out of Egypt. And now in the New Testament, we get to see the fullest expression of God's love and the fullest expression of His redeeming work. And it's expressed in a variety of places. And Paul says it this way, but God showed His great love. How did He demonstrate His love? By sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Why did He do it? Why did He send Christ? Because of His love. And then He tells the Ephesian church, this means love your wives. How am I going to love our our wives, God? Just as Christ loved the church. What did He do? He gave up His life for her. And John begins the last book of the Bible by going all the way back to the motive, what's driving God in redemption. And he says, all glory to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. So in this great love, this redeemer lays his life down, his full life. And it's the romance of this divine redemption. That's why, and I know I've mentioned this recently, that's why none of us who are truly following Jesus wants anybody to tell us uh, uh, or to, uh, uh, to ask us about our religion because we're in a relationship with a creator. We're in a relationship with God through Jesus. It's motivated by his love. And it inspires our praise. It inspires our adoration. It's that which lifts our singing, right? When we start to get a grasp of this, our singing goes from we do this all the time to I really mean this. This is really moving my heart. And eventually it leads to obedience where we're like, I'm willing to do anything because he loves me and because he's paid this incredible price by sending this, the beauty of an actual person, Jesus, the beauty of the person, not just the beauty of a theological system or a, a, a set of rules and regulations that we, that we use, but instead the beauty of a person who captivates our soul. So, what next? What next? We should pause. Can we pause? Let's pause. It won't be too long. I won't pause, pause too long, but let's, let's pause for a second. If, you, um, if your ears took an off-ramp, now's the chance, now's the time. Take the on-ramp, Okay? Let me ask you this, Um, and we should ask ourselves this question, do I know this love? Do I know this love? Not am I aware of it, not do I understand it, not am I, have I heard of it before, but do I really know this love for myself? Do I know this love? Have I entered into the most important relationship on this earth, which is, which is the, re, the relationship with this shepherd who cares for my soul and fills me faithfully, overflowingly, and unconditionally never lets me down? Have I entered into that relationship? 
the most important one of all. We've entered into a lot of relationships, and probably most of us have already discovered those relationships have different levels of fulfillment. I want to invite you to start, if you haven't, a relationship with the, that will be and can be the most important relationship of your life. Knowing, trusting, adoring, worshiping Jesus and seeing God the Father through Him. And lastly is my appreciation, is my affection, right? My appreciation and my affection for the character and for the love of my Redeemer. Is it growing? Is it growing? And it might be time to rekindle that affection. It might be time to rekindle that love. And if you were interested in doing that, the Holy Spirit, by the way, is causing that, and that same Holy Spirit will spark that fresh in you. And that adoration, that affection, that uh, appreciation is something that the Holy Spirit begins to grow in you. It's like a fire that you help this kind of put the kindling wood in place, but it's the Holy Spirit that brings that first flame and then it starts to grow. And so I'm going to ask you a question here um, about what's next, or a suggestion, I should say. Here's a suggestion for you, and I wonder if you'd consider this. Do the things. What things? Follow the rules? No. Do the things. What? Um, Live flawlessly? No. Of course not. Do the things. What things? Do the things that grow your appreciation and affection for the love of your Redeemer. You get the thrill of prioritizing time and uh, all the, the, the effort that goes into getting to know this Redeemer. And so, the first thing that you do, I mean, what, Pastor, what are the things that grow my appreciation and affection? Well, the first thing is respond to this love. What's the response? Repentance for loving other things. Repentance for loving other people above and beyond our Redeemer. And then, after repentance, we turn from loving those things and we, in fact, love, take on this new love and trust. We transfer our trust to Jesus. And we live a life of faith, repentance and faith, repentance and faith. Something else we can do too is refocus. Refocus and surround yourself with the things that immerse you, that let you settle into and, 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 and see this truth. I mean, immersing yourself in Sunday mornings, one example of how you're reminded as we sing about all that Jesus is, our heart is lifted. And Megan um, mentioned it again this morning. We're just reminded of how much we love, trust, and cherish this Jesus. Sunday preaching, teaching, stirs your heart to remember and to respond to this Jesus. And by immersing yourself in these things, God continues to be at work growing your appreciation and your affection. And some of you might be finding some favorite music that helps. Uh, For some of you, it's as simple as logging into our website and, and check out the Grow on Your Own section that gives you all these ways that you can start routines and patterns where you're not doing the work to save yourself, you're not doing the work to justify yourself, you're doing the work to build the relationship, right? To stay nearby Jesus. And of course, there's all kinds of other opportunities. Get, get around other people who love Jesus, right? Join groups and so on. 
You can, this is so fun, you can rest in God's love. The God of creation loves you. Get this, He loves you as you are. You know how everyone and everything else wants you to change? You're not quite right, and if you did this or if you stopped doing that, you would be more lovable? Imagine a God who says, no, as is, right there. That was one of my dad's favorite sayings. Dad, where'd you get that car? Well, I paid $50. $50 while I bought it, as is. What does that mean? I received it the way it was, and whatever is wrong with it, I accept that. I accept that. And my dad would do that. He would say, I accept that because I'm going to go to work and whatever's wrong with it, I'm going to repair it. And that's how Jesus' love is for you. He takes you as you are. He doesn't demand anything from you. He has everything for you. Imagine that. Nothing from you, everything for you. No conditions. Imagine a love that doesn't demand anything in return. Hey, look, it's 50-50 and you're not holding up your end of the bargain. It's more like 60-40. So, Receive that love and respond. Receive that love and respond with your deepest affection and your deepest devotion. We cannot lose in this story, the book of Ruth, the wonder of our Redeemer's love for us. And here's what I'm praying. I'm praying that this love will start fresh and will spark something new. And the word love isn't lost in your ears because you've heard it so many times. This love that was displayed so fully at the cross. The more we understand this theology, the more we understand um, while remembering that this redemption is motivated by God's affection for us, the more we'll be amazed, the more that our joy will grow, the more that we'll sing from our heart, the more that we'll obey Him, the more really we'll grow completely gratified. And instead of bitter emptiness, we find ourselves healed by the love of God. Healed by the love of God. Healed from the hurt. Healed from the disappointment. Healed from the emptiness. Healed from the loneliness. Healed from the lostness of where am I going and who am I and why am I doing this all? There is a God who fills and heals all of that bitter emptiness and He does it through His loving rescuer and redeemer who is our true and better Boaz. It's for you. It's a gift. Jesus, our gift, our hero, rescuer, savior, and friend. Would you stand with me? We're going to sing together and sing about how exclusive this love is together.